Hello, welcome to this episode of Linguistics with Laura. I hope you've been thinking hard about how language changes and how this is influenced by technology. I'm sure it's what's running through your head when you go to sleep at night. I know it is for me. Just kidding. Sort of. So in previous episodes, we've talked about how language affects thought, and in this episode, we're going to dive into how language affects society. So what does this mean? Well, it means that language has a lot of social influence, more so than you may realize. This specific branch of linguistics is called sociolinguistics, which makes sense because the word is a merger of the words social and linguistics. This branch of linguistics is particularly useful for anthropologists who study human behavior. Have you ever heard someone tell you that you have an accent, but then turn around and claim that they don't? Well, this is actually not true. Everyone has their own accents and ways of speaking, and this personal manner of speech is referred to as an idiolect. The technical definition of an idiolect is the language of an individual speaker with all of its unique characteristics. Fun fact, English may have anywhere from 450 to 850 million idiolects. An idiolect is of course different from dialects, which are mutually intelligible forms of language that differ in specific, systematic ways. Certain dialects can allude to some controversial topics since they sometimes have a stigma of being wrong or uneducated. However, a dialect is not, I repeat, not a degraded or imperfect way of speaking, but instead, it's just a certain version of a language. So how do languages and dialects differ? Well, if you come across someone who speaks a different dialect than you, you'll probably still be able to understand what they're saying, You just might laugh at their pronunciations of certain words, or perhaps their word choices. When people speak different languages, though, you wouldn't be able to understand the other person if they spoke a different language from you. So, essentially, languages are a collection of dialects. The relationship between a language and a dialect isn't always this static, though. When speakers of one dialect can no longer understand speakers of another, the two dialects form different languages. On the flip side, when various dialects move towards greater uniformity and have less variation, something called dialect leveling occurs. Similarly, if you were to take a look at a map of dialects across the United States, this would constitute what is called a dialect continuum. These dialects are phonetically distinguishable from one another because of accents, which we talked about earlier. The technical definitions for accents are regional, phonological, or phonetic differences. Additionally, the term accent can refer to speech of non-native speakers speaking in their second language. When it comes to accents and dialects, as I mentioned earlier, there tends to be a lot of prejudice. People get an idea that one dialect is better or more polished than another. This gets into the topic of social dialects, which are dialects that come about because of social factors rather than regional factors. This is often where the prejudice comes into play. The more accepted or prestigious dialect is called the dominant dialect. When people get too focused on these dominant dialects and preserving their validity, they sometimes make corrections that are actually not corrections at all. In fact, they're incorrect. An example of this would be correcting someone to say, whom is this when answering the phone, which makes no sense because the unidentified person on the phone call is the subject of the sentence, not the object. However, society tends to associate the word whom with being fancy and proper, even when it's simply not the word that makes sense for the situation. This type of correction would be considered a hypercorrection. Things get more ironic here, though. 
American culture holds itself to the standard way of speaking something called standard American English, which is considered to be an ideal form of language that should be spoken by everyone. But the irony is that nobody speaks standard American English because it's an idealized version of language, which is organic and natural. In reality, though, everyone has their own idiolect accent and individual way of speaking, and no dialect is more expressive, less corrupt, more logical, or more functional than any other dialect. It's like language communism, but not in the bad way, more like everyone is equally valid and respectable. However, not everyone seems to understand this fact. Language purists, specifically language prescriptivists, have this idea that they should prevent language change and dialect differentiation because they falsely believe that some dialects are better than others. As I mentioned in my episode on if there is a correct way to speak, I talked about how there's an actual French language committee that's determined to ban borrowed English words like le hot dog and le weekend from the French language. Good luck with that one, French language purists. Language is going to do what language is going to do, and no pretentious language committee or grammar police is going to prevent that. Language is, at its core, a form of expression. It expresses people's innate feelings about everything, including themselves. This can be a good thing, but also a not-so-good thing. When we look at language's influence on society, we see that language and gender influence each other in a number of ways. When we think about micro and macro aggressions, many examples of these come from language. People of different genders speak in different ways called gender lex, which are dialects specific to gender. For example, women tend to hedge their speech, often to seem more polite and to interrupt less. They also tend to ask more questions while speaking, such as, sort of, isn't it, you know, I suppose, etc. I know I personally use these phrases quite often. There's also innate gender bias within language. Typically, words that are unmarked represent the male gender, while words that are marked represent the female gender. In other words, the male gender is always the default gender. Words refer to the male gender unless proven otherwise. Take the words actor versus actress and bachelor versus bachelorette. The first word is considered the default word, while for the word to become feminine, an addition needs to be made at the end of the word. The only exception to this rule includes the word widow and widower, where the female version is widow, which is an unmarked word. This gender bias is even more present in romance languages, where a group of four women and one man is still referred to with a male-friendly affix. In Spanish, this would be the letter O as opposed to the letter A. Speaking of foreign languages, many people speak not one but two languages. Of course, this is called bilingualism. Further, some people speak many different languages. In the United States, most people speak English, and as a result, English is the United States' official language. Some nations, however, have two or more official languages, and this is called social bilingualism. In many cultures, there's one language in particular that is used by different people from different places that might be able to speak a common language. This is something called a lingua franca, and the most common example of a lingua franca is English. For example, a person from India might know some English, and a person from France might know some English as well. The French person and the Indian person probably don't speak each other's native languages, aka French and Hindi, though they can probably get by with their level of English knowledge in order to communicate. There's also something called a pidgin language, which is a partial language made of broken pieces of other languages. It's essentially a makeshift language that helps two languages coexist. Then there's something called a creole language. 
A Creole language is a full language, but it's a mix of many different languages that have blended together. Creole languages form when children start to speak pidgin languages, and those pidgin languages linger on, eventually developing into full Creole languages. The pidgin language becomes so pervasive in the lives of the children who speak it that it becomes their native language, which allows it to develop much further. So what different situations can make a person bilingual? Well, they could have grown up in a household where more than one language was spoken. They could have moved to a new country. They could have learned a new language in school, like me. Or they could simply live in a community with lots of linguistic diversity. Just because a person is bilingual, however, doesn't always mean they have an equal grasp of one language over another. For example, I might consider myself bilingual with my Spanish-speaking abilities, but I certainly know more English than Spanish. Further, some languages are more widely used than others. For a person who is bilingual, they sometimes have to go through a process called code switching. This occurs when a person is speaking one language and then suddenly has to transition to another. Even if you're not bilingual though, you probably still do this. For example, if you're on a Zoom call with your employees and suddenly your toddler walks into frame and is crying, you're gonna speak to the toddler with the situation dialect that you use when talking to a child, Whereas when you return back to the call with your fellow cohorts, you're probably going to speak suddenly much more professionally. This would be a prime example of code switching. Even in situations where the style of speech is informal, contrary to what you might think, these situation dialects still have rules. Have you ever experienced that incredibly awkward moment where your parents attempt to use modern slang? For example, maybe your mom says, wow, that shirt is so shook, or I'm feeling very twerk today. Now, I hope that your parents would never say such a thing, but let's just pretend for a second that they did. You would immediately be caught off guard at how these sentences don't follow the grammatical rules of Generation Z slang. That's because informal dialects still have rules, just like every other dialect that exists. Words that tend to act as more professional or are specific to a job are considered jargon or argo. For example, if I were to go into a hospital while a surgeon was performing surgery, I would probably have no idea what the words they were saying would be. That's because I'm not studying in the medical field, so I don't know what all those words mean. Give me a random word about semantics or phonetics though, and I'm all there. Typically in professional settings, in addition to jargon, we often use lots of euphemisms to talk about typically unpleasant things. A euphemism, as I talked about in my last episode, is a word or phrase that replaces a taboo term or topic. A dysphemism, on the other hand, does the opposite. It puts an unpleasant spin on something that isn't always necessarily unpleasant. This gets into the difference between denotative and connotative meanings. Denotative meanings refer to the literal, practical, objective meaning of words, whereas connotative meanings include all of the ways in which meaning is affected by our attitudes, emotions, and judgments about language, which really do matter. And with that, I shall conclude this episode of Linguistics with Laura. Be sure to tune in for my next episode on language processing in the brain, where I'll talk about how we understand all of these random sounds and letters that come out of our mouths and get put onto paper. It should be fascinating, to say the least. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Linguistics with Laura, and I'll see you next time.